This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Now, I'm really sorry that we didn't get an episode out last week. I had a couple of uh, medical issues which had cropped up, which uh, stopped me from going both to work and from getting a podcast episode out. Um, But we are happy to be back for this week, and we've got two episodes for you. Uh, The first is with former United Future Party leader Peter Dunn, and the second is with former Labour Party leader Andrew Little. Look, it's been a, uh, some would say, tumultuous election uh, or lead up to the election this year, uh, with three party leaders stepping down. Now, that had altered some of our schedules. We had Materia Today step down. Luckily, we had already interviewed James Shaw. Uh, and then obviously Peter Dutter, Andrew Little also stepping down, and we had also uh, recorded episodes with both of those leaders. Now, we're still releasing them this week, and the reason is this, that they're still relevant. The concepts talked about and the issues talked about within um, both episodes weren't week by week, day by day kind of um, episodes examining the blows of the election. They're big, high-level concepts. What are the values of these parties? What are their focuses for the election? Why should a young professional vote for this particular party or that particular party? So they're still relevant on an ongoing basis as opposed to um, just dealing with what's happening in politics on a week by week or day by day basis. So I hope uh, both of them are relevant in terms of talking about how you might vote uh, this upcoming Saturday. Of course, early voting has already started and you can enrol by going up to the polling booths, but you can't this coming Saturday. So if you're keen to get get out and vote, um, please do. It's important that your voice is heard. And I hope that these both of these episodes uh, may in some part uh, help you make your decision. Of course, we have already interviewed all of the uh, other party leaders, uh, except... New Zealand First and Winston Peters. Um, so head back and listen to all of those. We've interviewed everybody from the Prime Minister to David Seymour to Marama Fox. That was a great episode, by the way. Um, so check them out. Also check us out on Facebook. We are NZ Young Professionals Podcast or our website is nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Enjoy these episodes. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and today down the line we have the Honourable Minister Peter Dunn from the United Future. Minister, good morning. Good morning. Uh, So first of all, I'd love to hear a little bit about the man behind the bow tie. We see a lot... uh, a lot of memes on social media. Uh, we see your tweets, but I'm really keen to understand you uh, and, yeah, the man behind that bow tie. Oh, dear. Well, um, I've been a member of parliament for nearly 33 years. Uh, I started out in the Labour Party, had 10 years as a Labour MP in the 80s and early 90s, was a Labour minister in the uh, Palmer and Moore governments. Uh, left the Labour Party in the mid-90s because I didn't feel it represented my generation of New Zealanders uh, anymore and formed what became United Future. It was initially the United Party, which is essentially New Zealand's version of Britain's Liberal Democrats. And we've had some election successes and we've had some election lows, but we've been a support partner now for three terms for the National Party in government and prior to that, two terms for the Labour Party. Essentially, I suppose where we are, and it reflects my worldview too very strongly, is um, very 
focused on progressive modern economic policies, um, the power of the market to determine um, you know, behavior, etc. But at the same time, recognizing that on the social side and health, education, welfare, New Zealand's place in the world, all of those sorts of issues, human rights, you've got to be, if you like, to the left of the, of the, of the spectrum. So a very strong focus on those things, the protection for the environment, the enhancement for future generations. We're the only party at the moment that's pro-migration. Everyone else is trying to run away from immigration. We're actually strongly in favour of immigration because it's very much about uh, where New Zealand heads in the future. And I guess the thing that's always... The thing that's always interested me, um, and was the reason I ever got involved in politics actually, was uh, has been New Zealand, New Zealand's place in the world and the opportunities it provides. As a kid, when I was about 10 or 11, uh, there was a man called Norman Kirk, who was then the leader of the Labour Party. And I remember hearing uh, a speech he gave where he talked, um, and it was quite interesting, it was about the time of the Vietnam War, and he said, I want to hear New Zealand policy announced in Wellington with a New Zealand accent, not in Washington with an American one. And it was that first sense of New Zealand being independent, New Zealand being able to make its own way in the world, New Zealand being able to stand up for itself. That's what sort of inspired me all those years ago. And it's still pretty much a driving factor for me. I've got huge faith in this country and huge optimism that we can do it, but we can shape this world that we're in, if you like, uh, to suit our circumstances as a progressive, modern, uh, liberal, open society, one that's uh, economically successful, one that's also uh, socially uh, enlightened and prosperous as well. So I suppose that's the summary of the man. Um, if you like, I'm the last of the old-fashioned liberals. Um, and that's a good thing because I think there is still a place for those traditional liberal values uh, without lurching off into libertarianism or some of the other neoliberal stuff that's given liberalism a bit of a bad name. Mm. And what was it like when you chose to leave the Labour Party along with uh, – there, there was a little bit of flight at that time from the Labour Party, the likes of yes, there was. Uh, yeah. uh, Roger, Roger Douglas at the time. But yeah, well, instead yeah, of going he went to, off to join the ACT Party, that, which well, is, that's, I, think, that's I think, out to the far right of the political spectrum. He's perfectly entitled to that. Mm. Uh, I think that um, we, we used the slogan at the time, the United Party used the slogan, which I think is still relevant, which was more heart than national, more sense than the rest. And I, think that's still, I think that's still a, not a bad description. Uh, we think that the National Party, by and large, has got it on economics, but needs a heart. Mm -hmm. The Labour Party's got too much heart and can't balance the budget, basically. So what we offer is a bit of both. And to try, when we've worked with the Labour Party in government uh, between 2002 and 2008, our focus was on trying to keep them on a good economic path. Uh, with national, I suppose the role we play is much more one in terms of keeping the social agenda alive as best we can. It's a bit difficult when you've only got one MP, but we do what we can. Mm. Well, speaking of that, uh, I was I was looking at some of the previous election results of the United Future Party, and back in 2002, you had a stunner with about 6.7, 6 6.69% 6 yeah, yeah. of the vote. Uh, and, and from there, uh, it's, it's kind of been a, a little bit disappointing. Um, and, and it was exactly the same with ACT. I was speaking with David Seymour the other day, uh, and uh, he's having similar trends in the in yep. the party. Is that because uh, nationals moving towards the centre and crowding out your your typical? In part, you yes. In part, it is. And John Key was a big factor in that. Mm -hmm. But I think you've you've got to look at it from this perspective. And um, as I say, my Liberal Democrat colleagues in Britain have had exactly the same experience. Two thousand and ten, they blasted their way into a coalition government with fifty odd seats in the House of Commons, sixty odd, I think. Two thousand and fifteen, they got back with eight. And it's been you know, downhill battle. And I've talked with uh, Nick Clegg and others about that experience. And it's very parallel to ours. And it goes something like this. Um, 
the big parties dominate when they're in these multi-party arrangements in government. They, all the successes are theirs, and all the failures, of course, are brought about by the compromises they've had to make to appease their partners. So we, we get a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. So why would we do it? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Um, despite all of that, I look back over the last 15 years that we've been part of successive governments. United Futures achieved more probably in a morning than parties like the Greens and those that are outside government achieve in a lifetime. So you, mm. it's a trade-off between are you in politics to be effective and doing stuff or are you, are you there just to make up the numbers? I'm not interested in just making up the numbers and being a sort of a critic from the sidelines. So you've got to take the good with the bad. And um, I've been lucky in a way that for the last couple of elections, um, my vote has been the swing vote. And that's, uh, without trying to overplay the hand, it's quite an important role to have because you know you can have some influence. Oh, and definitely so. We've seen uh, quite often you between you and the ACT Party, David Seymour, and the Māori Party, uh, where you actually have been able to influence policy uh, either to block national or to support the, support the policies that are going through. Yeah, and I think that's an important role that we play. We, uh, I think each of us respects that we don't have a stranglehold. We're not the tail that wags the dog. On the other hand, we do have specific policies mm-hmm. that we're passionate about. And we do have a right and an opportunity to uh, either curtail national moving too far away from those values or to steer them in a direction to say, well, maybe you should take on some of the stuff that mm-hmm. um, that we're interested in. I'll give you a, a good example. Um, it wasn't really a United Future policy as such, but it was an initiative of ours a couple of years ago. I was very keen when I became Minister of Internal Affairs to see New Zealand return to 10-year passports. We had a five-year passport. Mm. Uh, I was able to drive that through the government and get it in place. And now our 10-year passport is one of the most successful in the world. Uh, that's because of the role I played as a, a small party with a, a bee in a bonnet, if you like, about a particular issue. There have been others over the years that I can look at and say, we did that because that was our view. Um, the recent or the forthcoming, but the legislation was passed recently, amalgamation of the fire services into one national organization. That's been our policy for a long time. I was able to use my position as a minister to drive that initiative through and to bring national on side. They now think it was all their achievement. Good on <laughs> but. But, you know, that, that's the sort of role you play, and I have similar roles with the Labor government in the past as well. Far better to do that than be sitting on the sidelines saying what the government should be doing and mm. why isn't the government doing that when you can actually be at the table and make a difference. I agree. And at the same time, um, what's the vision, your vision, for the United Future Party uh, in terms of how many MPs you'd, you'd eventually like to get oh, to? 120. Or- Or 121 with some overhang. Yes, yes. I'd like to see us become a more significant player simply because it's, it's, you're more, if you've, if you had a base core of half a dozen MPs, Mm -hmm. you can, you can operate more effectively in this place. You can be on select committees. You can do other things that one person can't do. So that would be the ambition. Uh, I'd like to see us sustain that in the longer term and therefore be in a position to work constructively with whoever the government of the day was to achieve the policies that matter for us. People always say to me, well, whose side are you really on? Are you really national or you're really Labour? No, I'm actually United Future. And the driving force is not, do I like this person or that? The driving force is compatibility of policy. Can we do business with these people? Are we able, Are there things there that, that we can push together? And if they're not, well, you don't seek to work with them. If there are, then obviously you do. Mm. And uh we mentioned before that over the last three or four terms, um, you've been United Future's sole MP. Let me ask you, does it yeah. ever get lonely? 
Uh, yes and no. Sometimes it would be nice to have some mates. Simply because <laughs> if, if Are you saying you don't on. at the moment? Well, in the sense that if there's a parliamentary debate going on on a particular issue, I get one speech, mm. and that's the United Future position over and done with, and the debate might go on you know, for a while. So it would be good to have two or three others who could come in and pick up the pick up the challenge, if you like, and have their own say. Uh, am I lonely? Not really, because of the fact that I'm in the pivotal position. Everyone wants to talk to me. Mm. And it's interesting. I was talking, as I mentioned, I was chatting with David Seymour, uh, leader of the ACT Party the other day, and he mentioned uh, that you, because you sit next to him that he always sees you on Twitter. Is that where you find your mates, Minister? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Some would say yes. Some would say that I simply cause a lot of mayhem. But no, um, you've got to be able to communicate, and mm. you've got to use modern media to communicate effectively. So I do use Twitter. I do use Facebook and any other opportunity that comes along to get your message out there because um, at best, unless you've got a big story that's all yours, at best you hope to be the last paragraph of every story, and you've got to get your – got to be there so you're at least recognised. Mm. I did see you taking uh, somebody to task the other day on Twitter about uh, the Opportunities Party policy about oh, uh, yes. legal, legalising or decriminalising yeah. uh, marijuana, which of course has been United Future policy for, for quite some time. Well, the policy was first announced by me in 2013. This new top party candidate who was selected last week said, look at, look at him, he's been in Parliament 33 years and done nothing. Here, I've been a candidate for three days and he suddenly pinches our policy. Um, <laughs> The media have all seen it for what it was and have gone back and said, actually, um, you know, you're the Johnny come late, please, not him. Mm. Uh, so that, you know, so it's quite good to just sort of remind people of that. Fantastic. And as mentioned uh, before this recording started, uh, the, the, the key purpose behind the podcast recording today is to talk about United Future's, I suppose, top three policies mm. and how those are going to directly affect New Zealand's young professionals. Yep. Uh, so, so I'd love to quickly go through those now. And um, what, what, what are United Future's top oh, I th- three I th- policies? I've th- <laughs> described them this way before going into detail. It's really about a, a, a position on what we want New Zealand to look like for the future. So it's about environmental sustainability. It's about protecting our uh, conservation and our public estate in such a way that New Zealanders can continue to enjoy it. It's not about locking things up so that people can only view them from afar. We're active, we're, in, we're into people actively using and utilising the environment. Mm-hmm. So that means that you look at things like dairy intensification and how acceptable that is given the, the reduction of water quality and water standards. You've got to do more in that space. You've also got to take a role, as New Zealand has, in a climate change policy because that's obviously a massive issue for the future. You've got to look at alternative energy sources. We've got a good, strong commitment with regard to electric vehicles, for example. Uh, So there's a package of measures around that. I think the bigger issue, though, behind all of this is what's the opportunity for New Zealand in the world? And Mm -hmm. I look at it this way. Um, We're a small country. We're a country that uh, whether you came from Hawaii in the 1350 or Europe in more recent times, we're a country of migrants. And migration has grown and shaped New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a consequence of our Maori heritage, the Pacific influence, the migration that's come from Europe and from Asia in recent times, we've got the chance to make the New Zealander of the future, my kids, my grandkids, your kids, the most um, ethnically mixed and culturally diverse 
person mm-hmm. in the world. So where our children are at home in the New Zealand environment, they're at home in Europe, they're at home in Asia, they're at home wherever, the Pacific, because we've grown up, we're a mix of all of those things. We're not just transplanted Europeans living mm-hmm. at the end of the Pacific. We're a mix of Africa and Asia and Europe and so on. And I think that's a really exciting challenge. And when I look around at the moment and see the argument about you know, too many Chinese sounding names buying houses in Auckland mm. or how we've got to have curbs on migration, this insidious stuff that's going on about Islamic terrorism. Yeah, there's an issue there, but don't blame all Muslims for that. I think there's a very bigoted and intolerant approach amongst a significant portion of the New Zealand population that doesn't actually sit well. We've got to be prepared to change that, rise above it, and create a positive vision for our future. Now, the third but is all of that is predicated on a sustainable economy, environmentally sustainable in terms of the way we use resources and the, and the goods we produce and trade, etc., but also economically sustainable in terms of ensuring that everyone has the opportunity of a good, uh, prosperous standard of living. So it's a mix of policies around that. Mm-hmm. As I say, the environment obviously is critical because without without our environment being secure, we are dead. And I see it was Stephen Hawking last week giving humankind a maximum of 100 years on planet Earth uh, before we're having to go elsewhere. And then this whole bigger picture of where New Zealand fits in the world. Mm, so, so I guess to, to summarise, and please correct so, me if so I've got this what wrong. What you can do is you can spit out of that a lot of very specifics, which would be future focused for young professionals, young people in particular, because you know every generation is passing. But if you've got a vision for the future, you're about leaving things better off for those who are, who are going to follow you. Mm. But if I can summarise, would you? Sure. And, and please correct me if I get this wrong. Um, it, it comes down to environment, uh, embracing globalisation, and the economy. Is that is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. It is. And and New Zealand being one of the progressive nations, uh, you know, I think we've, we've, we've developed over the last 30 years uh, a good independent foreign policy. We're not seen as anyone's toady anymore. I think that's good and we've got to play to that role, uh, certainly in terms of our commitment to trade because we are a trading nation uh, mm-hmm. and our ability to do deals and make inroads, that's important. But also the fact that our, our, our young people particularly and our citizens in the future will be and need to be well-educated, well-trained so that they can work as professionals in other countries and not be seen as sort of substandard, but very much at the top end, they can go make a contribution and come back here and make that contribution. So it's, it's about giving people opportunity to be the best they can be. And New Zealand is being well recognised and well regarded internationally for the talents they possess. Mm. So, so in that regard, which kind of fits into the globalisation, I guess, pillar of United Futures policies or priorities, uh, is that specifically talking about people's OEs and um, opening up those borders so that uh, New Zealanders have that opportunity? Yes, absolutely. And it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. We, we accept people here. We should also be fighting for New Zealanders' opportunities to do the same in other countries. Uh, you know, the traditional OE to, to Europe, for instance. Um, we shouldn't give that up because if you look at what's happened um, in probably the time of my generation, people did their university and got away quickly for a couple of years. I never did it, but got away quickly for a couple of years and came back. Now people lament the fact that our young professionals go stay go later, stay longer, but they still, the bulk of them come back to New Zealand because it's home. 
I don't think we should be frightened or scared or worried about that. I think you know parents who fear the loss of kids, modern communication techniques bridge that gap. But I think it's the skills that people amass, the opportunities they gain, and then the contribution they can make when they come back to New Zealand using those skills and experiences to better our country and then create, if you like, the momentum for the next wave. Mm. So uh, again, again, what it sort of sounds like you're saying is that uh, if we get the environment right, uh, begin embracing immigration and refugees and get the economy right over the long term, then it's going to affect my generation or uh, New Zealand's current young professionals uh, because we're going to have a sustainable and secure uh, country going going forward. Is that kind and that's, of a fair that's summary? the ambition? Absolutely, that's the ambition, and that we do it um, by consent. Mm-hmm. If you look at a number of countries, they've they've endured change because it's been forced on them either by invasion mm-hmm. or by economic circumstances deteriorating to the point that the World Bank and the IMF have come in and taken over and had to rescue basket cases. I think New Zealand's got the opportunity to make all of these changes by consent. And that's what I certainly want to encourage, a sense of our identity. And one thing that I think is part of that, although it's not top of our list, but it's certainly there, is the move to New Zealand being a republic and having its own elected head of state. It's all part of who we are, what we stand for, and being able to take that message outwards, both to the world, but also to create the opportunity then to strengthen the country as we move forward at mm. home as well. Just to dig into some of, some of the, the policies that fit within those sort of three key key priorities, um, I've been quite impressed by, by some of the ideas that have come out of the United Future Party, um, specifically uh, the one around superannuation, which, was a big, which is a big concern for, for many young professionals mm. now because uh, it's kind of predicted that uh, at some point in the future there will be two workers supporting one superannuant, uh, where at the moment it's four to one, uh, which, which doesn't seem sustainable. Mm. And yet United Futures policy, uh, and again, correct me if I get the details wrong, is um, that, you, that uh, New Zealand citizens would be able to choose uh, when they begin taking up super mm. from um, as early as when they turn 60. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's this big debate about the the affordability of superannuation. Mm -hmm. And if if nothing changes now, then, yeah, there will be an issue in about 20 or 30 years' time. And I think that's what the government's trying to address by saying that by 2037, we're going to have this new regime in place. We say, well, actually, we think we can um, deal with that to a large extent now by changing some of the the parameters. Um, If you go back 50 years and looked at the population profile in New Zealand, it was about the shape of a Christmas tree. You know, a small group at the top, and it sort of went out down to the bottom. Now the shape's more like a lamppost as as the population ages. It's pretty evenly up and down. So what we're saying is you've got people living longer. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. accepted. Um, People are going to live longer and live healthy lives for longer, therefore be in the workforce for longer and want to be in the workforce for longer because the nature of work's changing and it's going to be possible for them to do that. Um, But you've also got people who, um, for demographic reasons, uh, I'm thinking particularly Maori Pacifica, Mm -hmm. uh, or for other reasons, people who've been manual workers, who will still be physically exhausted by the time they're 60 and who don't have the expectation of very long um, retirement lives, basically. Mm -hmm. At the moment, a lot of them get to 65 and literally conk out. So what we're saying is, look, we reckon you should have the choice to take your superannuation at a reduced rate from the age of 60. It would be about two-thirds of the normal rate. Mm -hmm. That's the actuarial calculation for the rest of your life. Even if it's only four or five years, 
you know, it's something as opposed to nothing at the moment. Mm. And you, you might have a bit of quality of life around it. Or if you're hale and hearty and fit and strong and everything else, you might say, well, I don't need my superannuation. I can defer it till I turn 70, by which point I think the calculation is you get about 130%. But it's a choice that's in the hand of the individual. It's not the state saying we're lifting the age or the state saying we're telling you what to do. You make the choice. And our actuarial advice is that over time, as people live longer and healthcare improves, the age would probably drift up a little bit anyway. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually need to intervene. People will make that call for themselves. But there's another leg to it. More and more people take up KiwiSaver. Mm -hmm. We would make KiwiSaver compulsory, still have it paying out at the age of 65. So if you take the worst case scenario, you decide to retire at 60 on two thirds of the current superannuation. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got a, probably a fairly healthy KiwiSaver coming at 65. You could probably manage to bridge your way through and get both um, from 65 onwards. On the other hand, if you, um, if you go to 130% at 70, then you're going to be doing quite well for your retirement. Cost-wise, it doesn't cut the cost of super, but it stabilizes it at about the current level. And we think that's a much more pragmatic way through uh, than some of the other mm -hmm. debate issues. And I'll just make this final comment on superannuation. David Shearer said to me after uh, one of the elections Labor lost that the biggest mistake they ever made was to go out there and say they would shift the age of superannuation upwards because all that said, and he said, our voters told us loud and clear, thanks very much for telling me I've got to work two, three years longer. Mm. But, know, but isn't this, that the this trouble? Gives, this gives the voter the choice to make that call for themselves. Mm. But isn't that the trouble also with politics? That the people who tend to vote do tend to be the uh, the, the elderly, the um, the baby boomers, if I can call it call it that. Uh, and so even even though though keeping uh, superannuation as it as it currently stands. Um, is not likely to be sustainable or affordable in the future. Um, but yet, because my generation aren't, aren't voting, we're, we're sort of lumped with it just because we haven't cast yep. that vote? Yeah, I think two things in response to that. Mm -hmm. Firstly, we've got to do a lot better job in terms of engaging young people to get them to vote. And I don't just mean throwing out attractive policies that will sort of, if you like, bribe them to the election. I think it's much more about education, about the role of voting, the importance of being engaged in society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff that's been talked about. We've actually got to start doing it rather than just talking about it. I think the second point is um, it's distinctly possible, in my view, over time, that if KiwiSaver becomes much more established and it's pretty strongly in place now, it could well replace national superannuation altogether because people would have a good income coming from KiwiSaver. I think there are some refinements that need to be made to KiwiSaver, though, to ensure its sustainability. I'll give you the example. At the moment, someone who might have been in KiwiSaver, well, 10 years is about the maximum, I think, at this stage, um, will end up with quite a good lump sum on retirement. Let's say you've been in it 20 or 30 years. You could blow all of your retirement income in one hit if you were silly enough. Mm -hmm. what, we, what we think needs to be done is there needs to be a sort of a phase two KiwiSaver. And it's really about developing a good policy for annuities so that you can take your KiwiSaver lump sum, invest it in an annuity scheme, which will see you through for the next 20, 25 years uh, and beyond, and also um, make sure that the value of your lifetime saving is protected. Uh, I recall getting some advice a year or so ago that said that at the time KiwiSaver was constructed, which was only a decade ago, um, 
probably 65 to 75, people tended to be pretty active. Mm -hmm. uh, 75 to 80, um, they're winding down. 80 to 85, they're exiting. That was a sort of the broad pattern of life. In 10 years, that's probably shifted so that the 65 to 75 period is probably now more likely to be 65 to 85. 85 to 90 is your wind down. 90 to 95 is your exit. So that's immediately putting a strain on how much income you're going to need for your retirement, which is why I think a good post-KiwiSaver strategy needs to be put in place. I've raised that with the last two governments. They're not interested. They just see KiwiSaver and New Zealand superannuation is where it ends. And if you look at it in those terms, yes, of course, it becomes unsustainable. Mm. So if, again, if we can bring this back to New Zealand's young professionals, um, mm. it, your your priorities or your policies are about making superannuation more affordable, putting programs in place yep. potentially through a KiwiSaver V2 uh, mm. so that uh, retirees are able to essentially more or less uh, pay more of their way than they currently are yep. and taking also, some of that burden off the taxpayer or the yeah, worker. But it's also about coming right back to the beginning and saying mm -hmm. that Today's young professionals, and even those who are studying to become young professionals, life doesn't live in a series of segments. It's not like sort of, um, I just deal with these issues now. I worry about retirement when I get to, I don't know, 45 plus or something. It's about the continuity of how you actually are saving from day one mm -hmm. and building your way through that so that you've got a managed strategy that knows where you're going to be at a certain point in your life. We'd adopt the same approach. We're just working on the details at this stage to mm -hmm. housing policy, because uh, we think that there's a lot that we can do to encourage young New Zealanders to save for their first home. Um, we're looking at a tax credit scheme system that mm -hmm. might actually encourage people to save, um, gain some tax credits so that they can afford to bridge that deposit gap and get into home ownership. Uh, but again, it's not saying, oh, hang on, you don't need to worry about home ownership until you've graduated, got a job and settled down. It's, it's that continuity of life and getting people to start to think in those terms so that you don't have these pretty arbitrary barriers you've got at the moment. Mm. And just before we move on, do, are there any policies you in particular uh, would like to share with New Zealand's young professionals that might uh, affect think, them directly? Well, I, I think that one of the things that's, that, that I think is very important, and funnily enough, it's a policy that's not popular with young professionals, but it's popular with their parents, is about tertiary education. We would change the current system by abolishing student allowances but using the money saved from abolishing student allowances, which a lot of students don't qualify anyway, to abolish student fees. So it's an offset. So you'd, you'd end up with fees-free education. You'd have a loan scheme in place for living expenses, which means the cost of student debt would fall because people were borrowing a lot less. But it would also mean that you weren't being shut out of particular courses because you couldn't afford them so that people could actually do you know, the advanced degrees. Um, so you get around this business of how at the moment you can't do a postgrad course unless you've got a scholarship because there's not, no, no assistance available to you. And I think that, again, would improve people's opportunities long term. Now, the problem is their parents love it because it, it relieves them of the debt. But the young students we talk to don't like the idea they're not getting any income. They don't see the long-term picture. So what we're trying to do is say this is actually about how do you bridge the gap? You know, How do you make sure that the cost of education is not an impediment to your undertaking 
education and retaining the qualifications you need, but how do we also maintain a reasonable balance? And I think that in terms of the capacity that's in the New Zealand tertiary sector and the opportunities that are there for students, um, I think that that is one way of ensuring that we can obtain that balance and get the quality people we need coming through. Mm, Just my immediate reaction from that is probably that you'd be incentivising students to live at home for longer, and certainly that would benefit the the likes of people whose parents live in in inner-city suburbs mm. like of Remuera and Ponsonby and Newmarket, yep. um, but but I can imagine that that might uh, negatively impact those who, whose parents live further afield. Yeah, you could argue that. I think mm-hmm. what you'd have to do is look at the the amount that people can borrow for living costs now, because if you didn't change that and have some sort of structure within that in terms of recognising rents in different places, the outcome will be exactly as you describe. But I do think there's a case uh, for changing that that formula a little bit. Um, Mm. I find it really bizarre that um, we have it in effect in place for everyone else through the accommodation benefit, which pays more for the high cost areas than it does for others. But that doesn't apply to students. Mm. And it seems to me that's that's silly because uh, um, it just doesn't work. For a lot of people, you know, staying home a bit longer, if that's their choice, well, um, so be it. Uh, you know, I think that most most parents today would tell you that the, the syndrome of the bounce back kids is alive and well. You know, kids are coming and going and, and still around sometimes in their 30s even. Is that uh, right? I tell you what, man. You know, but, but look, that's, that's a changing social pattern. Um, it's a, a, you know, it comes and goes. I don't think mm-hmm. there's a huge problem there. I'm not saying it's desirable, but I just think it's a reality. Um, as opposed to you know a generation ago when you couldn't leave home quickly enough and people were leaving home in their late teens and never returning. So, you know, what we're trying to do is create a flexible environment that that gives the opportunity, that doesn't penalise, but deals with the problem that so many of our young people when they graduate feel obliged to leave the country because the level of their student debt is such they don't see themselves ever being able to earn enough here mm. to repay that debt. And what we're doing is by if, if you if you start to say, well, the biggest component of that debt is fees. Mm-hmm. Take the fees out of the in, out of the equation, um, so the focus then becomes living costs, which are far more manageable because you have maxima on what people can borrow. Then you can reduce that level of debt long term, make it much more feasible for your best and your brightest to want to actually stay here and contribute rather than flee. Well, I, I'm sure that there's uh, many many of our listeners, uh, and even, and especially the university students, would have uh, s- some thoughts on this as well. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. But and I tell you what, though, if I, if I could, my choice would still be to live at home. But uh, a a six <laughs> a six hour commute from Taranaki up to Auckland yeah, every day yeah, uh, no. is, is not so sustainable in itself. Uh, I think that's what they call heroic. <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, one of the last sections we like to do uh, as part of the political podcast series is that um, I'm really tired of dirty politics, and so I want to get yeah. get some clean politics in there. And you can't see it, but I will actually. I'll turn your microphone, uh, the camera around, so that you can. But I've got a spinning wheel of fortune here and I've got all the parties uh, that are currently in parliament on there except uh, United Future and I'm going to spin it and uh, whoever, whichever party comes up, I'd like you to say something nice about one of their MPs, some a policy you admire, how you might form uh, a good okay. coalition with them but you know just, just some nice touchy feelies if you right. would. Okay. Uh, and we have Labour. Well we've worked 
uh, with Labor, as I say, in government for two terms between 2002 and 2008, and I think we were able to achieve quite a lot in terms of United Future policy in that time. Uh, I've worked with Labor on a number of issues in the current parliament. I've supported legislation that they've, um, private members' bills that they've brought forward, the extension of paid parental leave, for instance, uh, which meant mm-hmm. the government had to veto it. Uh, I've, I've got good relations with a number of people in the Labor Party. I think that they currently are lacking a bit of direction and purpose, but I think that there are good and talented people there, and um, you know I, I admire a number of them. Is is there anybody in particular that you uh, you very do, do much? Uh, that, that's very incoherent. Is there anybody in particular that you do admire within the Labour Party at the moment? Oh, I've I've, I've got a very good relationship with David Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk frequently offline about a whole variety of things, and actually there's not too much difference between us. Um, when, as I said earlier, the fire service legislation, I talked about that, when that was going mm-hmm. through the select committee process, the select committee was chaired by Ruth Dyson from the Labour Party. She was a real pleasure to deal with, utterly professional, skilled, on top mm-hmm. of the issues, constructive and positive, and she did a great job. Mm. Let, let me ask you, who's your parliamentary best friend at the moment? Ah, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have one as such. I have good, a very close relationship with David Seymour and mm-hmm. with um, both Ura Flavel and um, Marama Fox from the from the Maori Party. Um, there are people like, I suppose, Bill English, simply because we've been around for a similar length of mm-hmm. time. I get on well with. Um, there's a variety of people, but do I have a particular friend that I go to cry on the shoulder of? No, I don't. But then that's me. I don't normally do that anyway. Mm. And two last questions, Minister, if I may. Um, the, the first is, say that there is, is a young woman driving, driving along the motorway uh, listening to this podcast. There's, there's a young guy in the gym, and they're thinking, why should I vote for United Future? You know, in a couple of sentences, what would you, you, know, what would you say is the reason uh, that they should vote for United Future? I'd say two things which they might regard as a contradiction in terms. I'd say, firstly, the safe pair of hands that will hold government steady and reliable. And secondly the one party with an explicit vision about where New Zealand needs to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time and the policies now to help us get there. Well, that leads very, very uh, nicely into my last question, which is say that you're at your family's uh, barbecue and, and your nephew runs up to you, he's eight years old, or uh, you know, one of your family relations, he's eight years old, he runs up to you and he, and he says, why do you do what you do? In a couple of sentences, three sentences, oh. how would you explain your big vision for New Zealand? Uh, I said right at the beginning that I was inspired into politics because Norman Kirk talked about New Zealand's place in the world and its future. And that's really still my driver. I'm not all that interested in doing stuff today that's going to have a solution today and no more. I'm much more interested in where we are heading uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the track and the consequence of decisions we make today for that period of time. So while I'm still breathing and still thinking that way, I'm still keen to be involved in politics because I think it's it's not about the here and now. It's about the world you leave behind you, the sort of conditions you create for your children uh, and for your grandchildren. And uh, I think that's a pretty important motivator. The Honourable Peter Dunn, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Now, if you care for more content like that, please hit subscribe in your favourite podcast listening app. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, we're pretty much on all of them. Uh, also, check us out on Facebook. We are NZ Young Professionals Podcast or also on nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Until next time. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.